Bill, I want you to open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 9 this morning. And we're going to look at a text this morning that serves as both a summary and a transition. Uh, a summary of what Paul has been teaching and now a transition to a new aspect of what he wants to talk about. Uh, a text that ties together the concept of divine election and human responsibility. And I want to just say at the outset that, you know, I was thinking, I was just meditating this week upon what makes the difference between a fu- the fruitful reception of the Word of God and an unfruitful hearing of the Word of God. And really what it comes down to is this. It's the posture of your heart, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, you think about this. We know this to be true in, in human interaction, right? Like when we sit down, for instance, with our children, perhaps, and they're, you know, we're trying to get across to them something that is of vital importance, whether it's, it's, it's talking to them about, you know, some, something that they're dealing with, some, some task or whatever that's on the horizon, how they should comport themselves in a certain way, or whether it's like even just to correct them, we can often tell how far our words go right by the by the manner in which they receive it isn't that true like if your kids are sitting there like this with their chins tucked down in their chest you know like they're getting ready to take a punch from mike tyson and you know take it and and keep standing you know that probably your words are just dinging off their heads and falling to the ground and they're the dumber for it right isn't that true but when your kids are leaning forward and their eyes are locked into your eyes, and they're listening to what you're saying, and they're nodding their heads, and they're agreeing, and asking clarifying questions, then you know what? You're getting through. They're hearing. They're listening to what you're saying, right? And I emphasize that because of the way that so many people, if you read the Gospels, the difference in the way that people responded to Christ's teaching, right? I mean, there was no doubt that even amongst his enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, 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 the chief priests and whatnot, they had to confess that, you know what, he speaks with a certain authority that nobody else has. He speaks in a way that people listen to him. And you know what? I, that's there's something about him right and yet they failed to receive the very things he was teaching why why it's because of their pride wasn't it it's because of their arrogance it was because they thought they knew better than christ he was unlearned he was not a man of letters like they were and so therefore they knew more than jesus knew and so they put themselves as an authority over christ rather than submitting to the, the obvious divine authority of the Lord Jesus, right? Where am I going? Here's where I'm going. Be careful. Take care that when we look at these things and the joining together of, of two concepts that seem impossible to reconcile, the election of God and yet human responsibility, take care that you're not found sitting in judgment upon the revelation of God. Take care that you're not caught sitting in, sitting in judgment on the truth of the living God as if God must make a proof statement to you of everything before you will accept it. God's Word in itself is a proof statement. You hearing me? God's Word in itself is a proof statement. This isn't geometry, okay? You don't need, God doesn't need to do a proof and turn it into you because you're not His teacher. No one has taught God. Our response when we approach the Word of God, even when it's confusing, even when it's something that doesn't readily resonate with our hearts, our responsibility is to hear and believe and act accordingly. Are you with me? 
All right, let's stand together. Let's read these words. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30, and we'll read through to Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. Paul writes and he says, <clears throat> What shall we say then? He says that a lot, right? That's, that's one of his key phrases, his keynote phrases. That's one of those Pauline phrases. What do we say now? What do we say to this? What then, right? What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they, they may be saved. For I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. You can be seated. Father... Heavenly Father, Almighty God and Lord, I am praying this morning that the preaching of Your Word will accomplish its purpose in the hearts of every single person in this room. I know that it will because I know that Your Word never goes forth and returns unto You void, Lord. But I am praying this morning that what it would do is that it would edify and strengthen and encourage those who are Yours. I'm praying, Lord God, that it would convict and humble and bring to faith the people in this room <clears throat> that are not in Christ. And I am praying, Lord God, that it would be a warning and a corrective for those, Father God, who are in Christ, but, Lord, who are falling away or failing to take as seriously the truth of the living God as they should. I pray to that end, Father God, You would give me grace and strength and, and that You would fill me with Your Spirit so that I would preach Your Word, Father, with the, with, with the intent and with the desire, Father God, with which I should. That is to glorify and magnify You and exalt the glory of who You are and make very little and nothing, really, of any of us. Father, that Your Word declares Your glory, not ours. And so I pray... That as we approach it today, God, we would do so in humility. We would do so in reverent awe. That, Lord God, You would make our hearts to approach You today in a position of dependence and submission. Father God, in a position that we say, Lord, unless You renew our minds, our minds remain unrenewed. And that You would do it through the preaching of Your Word. I pray, Lord God, that You would bring out of this text to our hearts exactly what You determine and You desire to do. And I pray, Lord God, that we would receive Your truth with gladness. And we would not kick against the, the goads. We would not, Father God, labor against Your truth. We would not be resistant to Your Word, but that it might find fertile soil in our souls and bring forth divine and everlasting fruit. Draw us to Yourself today. Through the preaching of Your Word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
You know, as I said, beloved, this is kind of a transitionary text. This text that we're looking at this morning serves, again, as a summary, a summary of the, the understanding, the teaching of divine election that Paul has just been engaging in since chapter 9 and verse 6, really throughout the entirety of Romans, but really focusing on in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 29, and then sort of transition to the human responsibility of responding to the truth of the living God. So let's think about what's been going on, right? In verses 6 through 29, Paul's been establishing, again, the scriptural truth of God's sovereign freedom in the salvation of sinners. That it is God who acts in His sovereign might, in His sovereign power, according to His sovereign purpose, to take out of this lump of fallen humanity, to take out of this lump of of fallen and rebellious and corrupt and polluted humanity, a people to belong to Himself. He creates from a people who none of them belong to Him, a people specifically for His own ownership. A people that will be for Him a, 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 a gathered nation. A gathered people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that will honor and glorify and worship and magnify the Almighty God and the glorious Son, His Lord Je- the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit for all of eternity, right? That's what God's at work doing. Saving a people for His glory, right? And He's talked to us about, for instance, God's sovereign choice, talking to us about Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. He showed us that God has the sovereign right to have mercy upon whom He'll have mercy, and to have compassion upon whom He will have compassion, and to harden in their own sin whomever He wills, right? That's God's prerogative. That is God's place as Almighty God. He's not unjust in His dealings with with fallen humanity because we're all sinners and we're all deserving of eternal wrath. And that 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 He saves anybody really is an act of grace and mercy and not something that God is obligated to do. Nor is He obligated to do for everyone what He does for one. Because we've all rejected and rebelled against His rightful authority. Right? Well, sometimes that's not enough for people. Right? And so we saw last week, just the the plain truth of what God says, sometimes that's not enough. And so as we saw last week, there were those that Paul encountered that were like, hey, you know, God's got to answer to us. You know, who can, who can help that? You know, like, go back to what the question that's asked here in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And you remember the classic answer, right? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to make God answer to you? You're a fool to think that God must answer to you. Because he doesn't. He doesn't owe you a thing. And after he rebukes those who would make God answer them regarding his sovereign freedom and authority, you remember that Paul was gracious enough to explain in greater detail God's mercy to save sinners. And again, he references, you know, this concept of our position before God as that of clay before a potter, right? That we're just clay and God's the divine potter. And God can do, like a potter can, with the clay whatever he feels like doing. He's got the power, He's got the right, He's got the authority to take from sinful, corrupt, polluted, and wretched clay of fallen humanity and create from that clay whatever He desires. If He desires to take that clay, a piece of it, and and fashion it into a vessel of honor, a vessel of His mercy, that He is prepared for glory, to magnify the majesty and the wonder of a God who can save, that He has the right to do that. And if He determines... 
to fashion a vessel for dishonor, a vessel of wrath, to leave that lump of clay in the condition in which it has already made itself by its sin, the vessel of wrath that is prepared for destruction by his own sin, then God has the right to do that too. And both of those actions serve to magnify His glory, don't they? He is glorified and magnified in the salvation of a sinner, and He is glorified and He is magnified in the judgment of a sinner. God is glorified in both, both in His grace and in His justice. He chooses to be merciful to some and not to others, to graciously save some, but to leave others in their sin. And, and, and that reality, Paul says, embraces not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. And so what are we to learn from verses 6 through 29 regarding salvation? What conclusion do we come to? What we've got to see is this. Is that if we honestly read this text, and not just this text, if we honestly read this text in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, and if we honestly read the Word of God from cover to cover, and we don't impose our own bias, we have to come to the realization that God is the one who gives salvation to whom He wills. That's just the facts. And we see that, that if anybody's saved, it's because of God's sovereign election of them, because He's chosen them in Christ before the foundation of the world, because He has placed His saving love upon them, and not because of any merit or anything in them or any rights that they have with God, because there is none and we have none. It's all because of His grace. But the other thing we must come to realize is this, is that if anybody is lost, It's not because God has withheld His grace. It's because of their own sinfulness. It's because of their rejection of God. It's because they have refused to honor Him as God. They are the ones who have made themselves and prepared themselves for destruction, right? As Charles Spurgeon said, he said, it's one of the axioms of theology that if a man be lost, God must not be blamed for it. And it is also an axiom theology that if a man is saved, God must have all the glory of it. And he's right. We're responsible for our sin, not God. We're responsible for our lost condition, not God. And so if somebody is lost, listen to me, it is not because they are not elect. I want you to hear me when I say this. If someone is lost, if they are condemned to judgment... It is not because they are non-elect. It's not because it's God's fault. It is because of their sinfulness. I want to say that again. If someone is lost, it's not because they are not elect. It is because of their sinfulness. God's not to blame. Election is not unto destruction. It's unto salvation. And you can't say, well... People go to hell because God doesn't choose them. No, people go to hell because of their sin. Now, some people will look at that and say, well, you know what? That's just splitting hairs. What's the difference? Why make this distinction? I will tell you why. Here is why. Because accuracy and precision regarding divine truth matters. Accuracy and precision regarding divine truth matters. It's a matter of theological precision. It's because God is never guilty. 
of unrighteousness. He can't be. If God were guilty of unrighteousness, He would cease to be God, and this world would fly off its hinges and cease to exist. God's not at fault if a sinner's condemned. Someone's own sin does that. But God receives all the glory for those who are saved because it's a matter of His mercy to the undeserving. You with me so far? So in this text that we're going to look at this morning, Paul's affirming everything that he's just been teaching about God's sovereignty and salvation. But now he's going to introduce, he's going to introduce and emphasize human responsibility. Human responsibility to respond to God. And he's going to use the lost Jews as an illustration. He's going to use the lost Jews as an illustration of how they failed to receive and they, the truth, and they stumbled at Christ, how they were ignorant and arrogant, how they tried to make their own version of righteousness, and they refused to submit to the gospel. And that's not God's fault, that's theirs. He's going to emphasize human responsibility for our choices before God. The responsibility of man to respond to God's truth in faith. And the centrality of faith, and the importance of faith. And somebody... Somebody's going to subject, some will object and say, well, how can divine sovereignty and human responsibility both be true? Right? How can they both be true? How can God be sovereign in election, but still hold man responsible for his choices? Still hold man responsible to believe? And the answer to that question is this. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, clearly teaches the doctrine here of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of human responsibility, and both of them are true. And Paul is not contradicting himself. If he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he can't contradict himself, can he? Of course not. He's not contradicting himself. He is not confused. He's not, you know... He gets it. He understands how any man or woman is saved. If, if, if a man or a woman is saved, it's because God has chosen that one, and by God's grace, he or she responds in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's divine sovereignty. And if anybody is lost, it's because that one is willful and a deliberate sinner, a proud and a boastful sinner, who rejects the truth of God and his offer of salvation. That's the failure of human responsibility. They fail to repent and believe the gospel. And both of those things are true. Well, you say, well, I need more information than that. I need more of an explanation than that. I'll turn to John MacArthur, who's a preacher a long, long time. A lot longer than me, much greater in wisdom. Here's what he said. The paradox between divine sovereignty and human responsibility is only an apparent paradox. Not a true one, but an apparent paradox. Listen to what he says. Which faith accepts while reason rejects. Faith accepts because faith acknowledges we don't have all the, all the information. We don't know everything. But we must trust God. Faith accepts this. Reason rejects it. And that's because human reason is finite. He says, if you have a problem matching up the sovereignty of God with human responsibility, just admit that you don't know everything and the problem is solved. Isn't that true? Just admit you don't know everything. That's very hard for some people to do, isn't it? Just admit you don't know everything. He says, because I also know that the gospel extends to the ends of the earth. And I also know that it was Jesus who said, come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. 
We understand the gospel invitation. We understand the outward call. We understand the tears of Jesus over those who wouldn't come. We understand the responsibility of the sinner who rejects the gospel and perishes and he is being punished for his own choice. We understand that. How that harmonizes with this doctrine of divine sovereignty, I do not understand. I may never understand it, even in eternity, because I will never be God. I will never be God. Just for a second. Well, he says, but I I will let God be God, and I will not redefine God on my terms. I I just want to say this real quick, as a side. What's been the problem with man all, all along? What was, what was the great temptation that confronted Adam and Eve? What? If you eat of this, you will what? You'll become like God. You'll be like God. In their original creation, they were as much like God as they could possibly be in that moment. Were they not? But Satan says to them, listen, if you eat of this tree, if you disobey God's word, if you disbelieve God's word, you will be like God. No, you won't. No, actually, you won't. No one makes themselves like God. So humility. I encourage humility this morning as we look at this text. So let's look at it. I want to begin, first of all, by looking at the stark contrast that Paul draws between the believing Gentiles, these people that are getting saved in the Gentile nations, and these unbelieving Jews. And I want you to see what he says here. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles, who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it that is a righteousness that is by faith but that israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law why because they did not pursue it by faith but as it were as if it were based on works let's just stop there for a second again what's paul doing he does this typical paul thing and he says what are we to make of all this? What are, you know, how are we to understand the fact that so many Gentiles are coming to Christ and so many Israelites are not? Like, what is going on here? What's the, what, what is, what is taking place that we have all these Gentiles coming to Christ and being saved and so many Israelites are remaining in their sins and being lost? And the first case he considers is the Gentiles. And what he says about them is really remarkable. He says, think about this, man. The Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness. They were not like trying to run after God. They were not trying to pursue some kind of righteousness from God or a right standing with Him. They weren't concerned about a right relationship with God. They weren't concerned about the righteousness that everybody desperately needs. In fact, listen man, the Gentiles were doing everything but pursuing God. They were running away from God headlong, right? I mean, there were some, no doubt, who pursued morality, who pursued their own version of of morality according to their own wisdom and their definition of it. But in the main, when you thought about the Gentiles, you thought about godless idolaters, right? You thought about people that were outside the covenant and living in sin and unrighteous in every way and without any special revelation of God, blind to His glory, suppressing the truth about God, futile in their thinking, having darkened hearts. I mean, when you thought about them, You thought, if there's anybody who deserves to absolutely go to hell, it is the Gentiles. Right? And yet, in their darkened state, they heard the gospel. Men had taken to them the gospel. Men like Peter and Philip and Paul and all of the apostles had gone and preached the gospel 
amongst the nations. And they heard the gospel. And in the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shone in their hearts. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what did it do? Well, the gospel exposed their sinful state. It awakened them to the truth about God. First, that there was a supreme God. One God. One God alone who was over all. It revealed to them His glorious Creator. His place as sovereign King to whom everybody on on the day of judgment is going to give an account. It revealed to them His righteousness and His holiness. And it also showed them the truth about themselves. It showed that they were wretched rebels and sinners, that they were under His just condemnation and wrath, and that they deserved to be destroyed. And they were made to see, their eyes were opened up, to see that the only hope for a right standing with God must come through the Lord Jesus Christ, His only Son, right? They heard the gospel. And to them, it, it didn't gnash at them. It wasn't a, this big issue like the Jews have. Like, they heard it. And they recognized like the, the, that their only hope was found in this Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And in His substitutionary representative life of holiness. And in His perfect fulfillment of God's righteous standard on their behalf. And His substitutionary, debt-paying, wrath-bearing death in their place and resurrection. And their blinded eyes got opened. And they saw that this salvation could only be received by faith. And they made no excuses, these Gentiles that were saved. There was no litany of reasons why they couldn't come to Christ. They, they didn't try to puff up some imaginary self-righteousness that they didn't have, these Gentiles that were saved. Instead, they realized that salvation was a gift of God. That righteousness with God was a gift given to those who placed their trust in Christ alone. That it was entirely of God's grace and they grabbed it. That's what that word attained means. The word that's translated here as attained is a word that means, it word that means to eagerly seize something by force. To grab hold of it. To refuse to let it go. It's like a dog that lays hold of a bone and won't let it go for anything. That's the idea here. They laid hold of Christ. They came to God with an empty hand. They humbled themselves. They repented of their sins. They received Christ by faith. And they laid hold of the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. A divine righteousness that saves. And a Savior who leads people to walk in His footsteps in a life of faithfulness. In a life of true obedience to the heart of God. These Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold, grabbed hold, greedily seized a righteousness that is by faith. How did that happen? How did that happen? Was it just that Paul and and Peter and whomever else that preached them were particularly persuasive on a certain day? Is that what it was? It was that they were just silver-tongued, you know, wonderful preachers, golden-plated, you know. Is that what it was? Is because they were particularly innovative on that day? I got a new, I got a new message for you. This is really innovative. Listen to this. No, can I tell you what? Faithful gospel preaching is not innovative. It's not. If, if you hear an innovative gospel, turn around and run as fast as you can. Preaching of the gospel is not innovative. It's preaching what's been delivered. It's preaching what's been delivered. And God is not delivering new things. <laughs> it's already been delivered. Are you with me? 
What makes a difference then? There's only one explanation, isn't it? It's the mercy of God. If they weren't pursuing God, then who do you think had to be doing the pursuing? God Himself. If they weren't striving after God, God was the seeker. God graciously sought them out and saved them by His sovereign grace, by His sovereign mercy and His compassion, because He chose them as vessels of mercy for His glory before the foundation of the world. And if we're honest, that's the description of all who are saved. That's our spiritual biography, isn't it? He sought us and He saved us. Oh no, but I went to church. Why? Well, because my family took me to church. Yeah, but why did they take you to church? See, when you keep going back, well, because they went to church. Why were they going to church? Well, because they worshiped God. Why did they worship God? Well, because it seemed good to them to worship God. Why did it seem good to them to worship God and not Buddha? See, if you keep going back far enough, you always have to get to, well, God. It's God at work. God was the seeker by His sovereign mercy. He sought us. He saved us. We weren't seeking God. Some of us might have been religious. Be amazed at the power of God's grace to save the religious. We often think, man, God's power is really shown when He delivers a murderer from, you know, condemnation and brings him into fellowship with the Almighty God. It's true. It's the power of God. But you know what about a murderer? He knows he's guilty, doesn't he? Doesn't he? But the religious think they're righteous. The religious think they're moral. The religious think they're very impressed. They're, they're impressed with themselves. The power of God is remarkable to break the arrogance of the religious and bring them to Christ, isn't it? Some of us may have been religious, but God was the one who was seeking us. And if He had not sought us, we certainly would never have been saved, right? But then He turns to the Israelites. These Israelites that are unbelievers... Look at the way that he describes them again. He says, Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. And here's the thing about unbelieving Israel. Here's what Paul's saying. He's like, you know, they were really... Sorry, I won't do that again. That was really weird, wasn't it? He's like, here's what he's saying. They've been the recipients of many good gifts from God, right? Amongst them... They'd been the recipients of God's law, but they failed to receive the righteousness of God despite the fact that they had run hard after it. They had pursued it. The idea here is that they were hunting it down. And they they never got to that place of righteousness. They made every effort, human effort, to achieve righteousness and they fell short. And why is that? Well, it's because fundamentally they didn't understand the purpose of the law. That's why. It's because when they looked at the law, they saw the law as a means of gaining righteousness with God, right? They reduced the law. They lowered the true standards of righteousness, right? Which is obedience from the heart to every commandment of God. To a series of external precepts and and rules that they thought they could keep and that they thought would make them righteous in God's eyes. And that would obligate God to accept them by their own efforts. But for all of their efforts at law-keeping, right? All the external attempts at holiness, their self-congratulatory morality and religiosity, their hearts remained in the same condition that they were, right? 
remained callous toward God, lost, sinfully corrupt, unchanged, polluted, unrighteous. Why? Because they thought that the law was given to them to commend them rather than to condemn them. The law was given to show the righteous standards of God and to show them that they did not measure up to that divine standard. They had a false view of themselves. A false view of their imagined righteousness. They failed to see their true spiritual condition. They thought themselves to be basically good. So does every lost human being in the world. And so they thought they could keep the law and make themselves righteous by human effort. They thought their words could commend, their works could commend them to God because they did not read the law with eyes of faith. They did not see that the law was not written. Again, it was not written to commend them, but to condemn them. But at the same time, to point to a Savior who was to come, who could do for them what they could not do. The law was given to do what? To lead them to Christ. Isn't that true? We know that. The law was given to lead them to the only one who could actually fulfill the righteous standards of God and propitiate God's wrath against their sin and provide them with a true righteousness by which they could be saved. The law pointed to Christ. The Savior who by His grace could lead them in a true pattern of righteousness before God. The problem with the lost Jews was that they looked to themselves as their own Savior. And they looked to their works as the means of gaining merit with God. With earning salvation. They did not see the law with eyes of faith. They did not see that the law went beyond external obedience to the condition of their hearts and their souls before God. They didn't see that the law was not a checklist to get your blessings from God, but it was given to expose your need for a Savior. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ came, what did they do? They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Of course they did. Of course they did. They stumbled at Christ. Look at what Paul says at the back end of verse 32 into verse 33. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, behold, I am laying in Zion... A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Here was the deal. Because of their unbelieving arrogance, the Jews stumbled over Christ. They stumbled over the only Savior and Lord when He came. Now I want you to see what Paul's doing here because it's very important. He's combining two quotations, really from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. First, it's Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14, or verse 14, where he says, And if thou shalt trust in him, he shall be to thee a sanctuary, and you shall not come against him as a stumbling stone, neither as against the falling of a rock, a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. And then from 28, verse, or 20, chapter 28, verse 16, Behold, I lay for the foundations of Zion a costly stone, a choice a cornerstone, a precious stone for its foundations. And he that believes on him shall by no means be ashamed. Now he's taking both of those texts and he's putting them together and he's rightly applying them to Jesus. And he's saying, here's the facts about Christ. When Christ came into this world, okay, by the unbelieving Jews, 
At, at the same time, by the unbelieving Jews, he was rejected and, and became an occasion of them taking offense. He became a stumbling stone to them. But at the same time, he became the cornerstone of salvation, the very grounds of salvation for everybody who believed in him by God's grace. What made the difference was how you saw Jesus. Either from a position of self-righteous unbelief or from the position of humble faith. The Jews, we know how they approached Christ. It's evident, isn't it? You read the the Gospels. How did they approach Jesus? They approached Him with self-righteous unbelief, didn't they? They found Christ to be a stumbling block, a rock of offense. They refused to receive His testimony. They were always arguing with Him about what He said. They wouldn't receive His words. They refused to acknowledge the many evidences of His glory. When He made Himself equal to God, called Himself the Son of God, they wanted to put Him to death, right? When He called them to repentance, when He called out their sin and their hypocrisy, again, rather than being humble, they wanted to kill Him. You know, we read how He he tells a parable. And then the Pharisees, it says the Pharisees, they realized He was telling the parable about them. And they sought for an occasion. They rejected Christ completely. When He called them to faith and repentance in Him, when He died a scandalous death on the cross to pay the debt of sin, oh, you who saved yourself, or you who saved others, you can't save yourself. Come down. Remember that? They refused the only way for deliverance and rescue for their sin-addled souls. Why? Why was Jesus such a stumbling block to them? I'll tell you why. His, their pride. Their self-righteousness, their arrogance, their self-importance. That's the truth of everybody who stumbles at the gospel, isn't it? Like, I just don't like what the gospel says about me. I don't, I don't, I don't like what the gospel, you know, what it says about me. See, they had no, no place in their system of self-congratulation. Man, am I being harsh? No, I'm being factual. They had no place in their system of self-congratulation and self-salvation for a crucified Messiah who must die for their sins if they would be saved. That they would need to look outside of themselves for salvation. That they had to abandon all of their self-effort and self-dependence for salvation and confess that they were absolutely worthless and worthy of con- condemnation. For them to to confess that they had no righteousness at all before God and must trust in Christ for righteousness with God, that was so offensive to them. Don't you know who I am? I do. I do know who you are. You're a sinner just like me. It's you who doesn't know who you are. They didn't like it. Christ was an offense to them. Men who had been saved by grace when they preached the gospel to them. They didn't want to hear it. It struck at their pride, at their self-esteem, at their imaginary goodness, at their human strength and wisdom. And yet, can I tell you what? Here's the point. God says, I laid that stone in Zion, right? Right? God placed Christ and Him crucified at the center of salvation for just the purpose of wrecking human pride. And Israel was totally responsible for stumbling over him. Christ takes a wrecking ball to human pride. And as Charles Simeon put it, man, he's spot on. He said, 
Any plan of salvation which gives no offense to self-righteous men is certainly not of God. I'm going to say that again because it's so great. I wish I'd have thought of it. Any plan of salvation which gives no offense to self-righteous men is certainly not of God. They refused to believe in Christ. They chose to reject Him. And they were responsible for their choices. On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum are the Gentiles, right? God had graciously pursued them, called them out with the gospel. They heard the good news that Christ came into the world to save sinners. They confessed and, and realized that they fit that description. Sinners. They didn't kick. They realized they needed salvation, and so they believed on the precious stone, on the infinitely worthy Son of God, on the costly stone, the stone of infinite price, the cornerstone, the one upon whom life must be built and upon whom the church is established. And they received the righteousness of God. They believed. They believed the truth. That for our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Here were men that were, that were immoral, sexually immoral, that were idolaters and drunkards and practicers of homosexuality and thieves and greedy and drunkards and revilers. And here they were inheriting the kingdom of God ahead of the self-righteous Jews. Why? Because they had been washed. And they had been sanctified. And they had been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When you truly believe in Christ as your righteousness before God, you will not be ashamed or disappointed or dissatisfied. Christ cannot disappoint. No one, when they've come to truly know Him as Savior, can ever return to the deadness and the emptiness of life without Christ and His righteousness. You just can't do it. So he lays out this stark contrast between the lost Israelites who in their pride and unbelief stumbled at Christ, refused to believe in Him, and the Gentiles who by God's grace were grabbing hold of the salvation, greedily so, that could be found in Christ. But notice his response to all of this because it's so instructive to us. And it lays bare Paul's heart. Look at what he says. And when he, he offers an earnest prayer in, verse, in chapter 10 and verse 1. Look what he says. He says, brothers. He's talking to his brothers and sisters of Christ. He says, brothers. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the unbelieving Israelites, is that they may be saved. Now I want you to see something. Beloved, Paul's an astute theologian, right? Probably greatest ever, right? He taught the sovereign election of God, but he also taught... The responsibility of man to respond to the gospel in faith. He held both of those realities in perfect tension, right? But I want to know, I want you to notice what it does not make him. It did not make Paul cold and fatalistic and stoic, did it? Did it? It made him zealous for souls. He says, my heart's desire, the thing that he longed for, that he hoped for, that he prayed for, the thing for which he pled and petitioned God, asking and seeking and knocking, was that the Israelites would be saved. He knows human, he knows divine election, he knows human responsibility, and it moves him to pray. Now the cynic in the room says, well, why? Why bother? If God's sovereign in salvation, why pray? What does that do? If God is sovereign in salvation, 
then what is the point? Why pray? Here's why. Because God is full of mercy to sinners. That's why. Because God is full of mercy towards sinners and He delights to show mercy to the guilty. He's the only one that can change a human heart, not you and not me. If you think you can change a human heart, you are woefully wrong, deluded. You cannot change If you could change, if you had the power to change human hearts, there would be no lamenting love songs about the girl that didn't see how much I loved her. Because you'd change your heart. The only one that can change hearts is God. You pray because God's the one that can make a difference. It's because God establishes, beloved, the means by which people are saved. And one of those means is earnest prayer. You say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. Guess what? It doesn't have to. There are many of you, when you get in your car and you turn the key, as long as it turns on, that's good for you. You don't have to know how it works. And most of you don't. You just need it to start. Right? I don't have to have a dissertation explaining to me how prayer works with the sovereignty of God. In fact, If somebody gave it to me, I probably wouldn't even read it. I just trust that when I pray, God moves. That when I pray, if I pray according to God's will, I have the things for which I prayed. Well, why do I believe that? Because the Bible says so. You might say, well, brother, that's not, that's off, that's not very intellectual of you. Okay. Point taken. If that's meant as an insult, It's not one. I'm not smarter than God. Right? Neither are you. His sovereign plan for the salvation of sinners includes prayers. It includes preaching. It includes our witnessing for Christ. That's why Paul prays. You know why else? Because it was personal for Paul. Now, I really want to talk about that. It was personal for Paul. As he thought of himself, how? As the chief of sinners. What a difference Paul is from us. We might say, I'm middle of the pack. There's some that are worse, some not as bad. I'm about middle of the pack. And that seems really humble. Right? Paul's like, I'm the chief of sinners. And as the chief of sinners, God had saved him. And he couldn't be callous regarding the plight of the lost because he didn't know who God, whom God might save and neither do you or I. He knew the power of Christ to save. He knew the power of the Holy Spirit to draw and convict even the worst of sinners. And he knew God's amazing grace to him. The certainty that God saves the lost moved him to pray without ceasing. Would that it would do the same in us. I think we'd see much greater success in evangelism if we prayed like it mattered. In fact, I love what Robert Haldane says. He says, we should never cease to pray for and use all proper means for the conversion of those who either oppose the gospel with violence or from some preconceived opinion. Secret things belong to God and none can tell whether or not they're among the number of the elect. No one among the Jews was more opposed to the gospel than Paul himself had been. And every Christian who knows his own heart and who recollects the state of his mind before his conversion... That's a horrible thought. But should consider the repugnance he once felt to the doctrine of grace. 
Guilty. Paul was moved to pray. It burned his heart to consider that the unbelieving Jews, that they were zealous. Man, they were zealous. But they were ignorant and they were arrogant. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul testifies, look, they're zealous. You got to give the Jews that, right? They're zealous. They're an excitable group. These unbelieving Jews are full of heat and passion and energy. You got to give them that. The problem is they don't have a clue who God really is. That's what Paul's saying here. The problem is they don't really know Him. They don't know His ways and they don't know His truth. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And the way that that phrase is used, the righteousness of God, means it refers here to the righteous character in the person of God. They were ignorant of who He really was. They thought they knew Him. They were woefully ignorant of the truth about Him, of His glory and His majesty. Of His burning holiness, of His perfect purity, of His absolute righteousness, of His hatred and wrath against sin, of the omniscient gaze He possesses that sees to the very deepest parts of the human heart. They didn't get it. They didn't understand that God dwells in the high and a holy place. And also with Him who is contrite and of a lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. They did not understand that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's because they didn't understand the righteousness, the glory, the majesty, the holiness of God, that they thought that they could create a righteousness that God would accept. They just didn't get it. They were sincere. But they were sincerely wrong. Beloved, I want you to hear me. Sincerity is not a matter of truth. It's not a measure, rather, of truth. Excitement is not a measure of truth. It's not. True zeal must be the result of knowledge. It must be the result of knowing God in truth. It must be the result of knowing God as He's revealed Himself in His Holy Word. It's got to be the result of right doctrine. Absent that, you know what it is? It's false zeal. It's empty emotionalism and manipulation. It's crowd hysteria. If zeal's not grounded in truth, it will always lead us astray. Always. In fact... This is something that could be said of so much of the contemporary visible church, isn't it? A lot of emotion. A lot of energy and heat. A lot of hysteria. Very little light. They know a caricature of God. A caricature of Jesus. A a warped view of the Holy Spirit. One that's not formed by Scripture, but rather by culture and by their own imagination. By the innovation of the preacher. They've got their own gospel. And it's oriented on self, on self-esteem and personal achievement and materialism. They market an earthly view of salvation that's absent the doctrine of sin. Absent the doctrines of repentance and faith. Absent the doctrines of a Redeemer and a Savior from God's wrath. Propitiation. It's absent those things. 
Because Jesus is all about making you happy and making you personally fulfilled. Just show them how Jesus will help them to have happy families. Just show them how Jesus will help them succeed in their business ventures. Just show them how Jesus will maximize their potential. Show them how Jesus affirms them and their sin. Because Jesus gets us. He gets us. I'm going to throw up. They preach a gospel that consists of Jesus blesses those who try hard and do good things. And people who try hard and do good things go to heaven. What is that but a form of law-keeping minus grace? What is that except going about trying to create your own standard of righteousness? It's exactly what it is. It's human effort for temporal gain that doesn't recognize their true position before God and their desperate need, which is deliverance from God's wrath that can only come from humbling yourself, confessing your sin, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, taking up the cross, denying yourself. Well, there's the kicker, right? Denying yourself and following Him. It's just absent the guts of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't it? Phil Newton says, right standing with God for eternity cannot be marketed. Some have tried. They've gone light on the holiness of God and skipped over the sinfulness of man and twisted the cross into a motivational tactic rather than the place of atonement. And they've ignored the resurrection lest inquirers to Christianity strain their credulity with a goal to add more faces to their programs and names to their database, these spiritual deceivers only denigrate the very gospel they claim to believe, having stumbled over the declarations in the gospel, they steer others in the same path of destruction. Beloved, it's no wonder why there are so many professing Christians who when they are asked why they think they will go to heaven, respond with some variation of, I'm a good person, I've done more good than bad. I've been relatively law-abiding. And I may not be perfect, but I have lived the best that I could. And I've gone to church. And and I've seen God bless me. And so on and so on and so on. And though they profess to be Christians, it never occurs to them to mention the name of Christ or to describe the deep pit of their sin and their unrighteousness or their hatred and their rejection of God and their rebellion and their unbelief from which they were delivered by the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead and God's grace to open their blinded, death-seeking eyes to life. It's because they're relying on a gospel of self-righteousness just like these unbelieving Jews on a righteousness of their own, their own goodness. They might talk about Christ. They might even name Him. But they stumble at the Gospel because though they have a zeal for God, they do not have that zeal according to knowledge. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. They're ignorant of the Gospel of God. And so they think they can make themselves acceptable to God by their own works. And they can't. They're just like these Jews who insisted on establishing a righteousness in their own strength that God should accept, that God must accept. And all, but, but all their righteousness in God's eyes is what? It's as filthy rags, isn't it? In their arrogance and in their ignorance, they stumble at Christ and they refuse to submit to the only way that God provides righteousness for anyone. John Calvin says, how they stumble at Christ who trust in their own works is not difficult to understand. 
For except we own ourselves to be sinners, void and destitute of any righteousness of our own, we obscure the dignity of Christ, which consists in this, that He is light, life, resurrection, righteousness, and healing. But how is He all these things except that He illuminates the blind, restores the lost, quickens the dead, raises up those who are reduced to nothing, cleanses those who are full of filth, and cures and heals those who are infected with diseases. Nay, when we claim for ourselves any righteousness, we contend with the power and the glory of Christ. For His office is no less to beat down all the pride of our flesh than to relieve and comfort those who labor and are wearied under their burdens. If you're not lost, you can't be found, right? The unbelieving Jews refused to submit to Christ. They tried to approach God in another way by seeking to establish their own righteousness and it just can't be done. I want to press home to you something, a truth this morning. I want you to hear me when I say this. Beloved, there's only one right and acceptable way of approach to God. You hearing me? In our pluralistic world in which we live, we like to hear, we hear people say, well, there's many ways to God. No, there aren't. That's a lie. That's an utter lie. There are not many ways to God. There are not alternate paths. There are not, you know, alternate broader paths that lead to the narrow gate. There aren't. That's a lie we tell ourselves. That's antagonistic in our generation and our culture. They want to believe. They like to believe that anyone can come to God in any way that they please. But they can't. They can't. There's only one way to approach God. And it's not through any form of self-righteousness or self-justification. Man, that's just wrong thinking. It is wrong thinking that, that underestimates the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the costliness of grace. There's only one way of approaching the holy God. And it's through humble submission to God's righteousness. And in this case, the phrase God's righteousness is talking about the person and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. Paul says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words... Christ stands alone as the only way to God. He's the only right way to approach the Holy God. In essence, what Paul is saying is this. Christ's the end. He's the fulfillment. The telos. He is the righteousness to which everyone... Righteousness to everyone who believes. He is it. He is all. It is Him alone. Christ alone is the righteousness that we need. And those who trust in Christ cease trying to establish their own righteousness with God because it's found in Christ alone and it can't be produced by human means ever. When you come to Christ, finally you are at rest. Because the righteousness that you need is found exclusively in Him. Belief in Christ as Lord and Savior, as the very righteousness of God, ends the futile attempt of any man to make himself righteous in his own works. It's not because of your works that you're made righteous with God. It's because of God the Father that you are in Christ Jesus, Paul says, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
You're in Christ because of God, the Father, period. And you're not disappointed if you're in Christ. You can't be. There's not a million approaches to God. There are a million different ways to go to hell. There's only one right way to approach God. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what then do we say to these things? What do we say to this text this morning? (laughs) For those of us who are believers, the first thing I want to say is this. We need to confess. Really confess and own that that the sovereign election of sinners to salvation is vital truth to be embraced and believed and for which we should praise God with unending gratitude. Here's why. Listen to me now. This is true. Just follow with me on this. Without sovereign election, there's no salvation. Period. We're all one lump that goes to hell. Without sovereign election, there's no salvation. Without election, all of us remain in our dead, sinful, depraved state. Without election, there is no effectual calling. There's no regeneration. There's no being born again from the spiritually dead by the Spirit of God. Without election, Christ doesn't actually die for anybody's sins in particular. Just for sin in general. For those who are spiritually dead who might possibly respond in faith on their own. Which constitutes a grand total of nobody. Without election, there's no guaranteed preservation or perseverance of the saints. If I'm the one who chose God, then what? I can unchoose God, can't I? I can unchoose God and be eternally lost. What security is there in that? That is not a good news gospel. (laughs) You can be saved, but then you can be lost again tomorrow. Really? Yeah. How do people still go to that church? I don't know. God's sovereign election is the basis of our salvation. It's a truth that is clearly stated, again, not only in Romans 9, but in Ephesians and Corinthians, really throughout the entire Bible. And God's sovereign election guarantees the salvation of His people. In fact, it creates God's people for whom Christ died. And it is because, it is because of God's sovereign grace that you have believed and have been saved from the wrath to come. And that should be for us a comfort, a security, a source of confidence in the midst of this fallen, tumultuous world, a constant source of worship and praise that God has shown us such mercy and compassion. And once saved, we can never be lost because we have God's Word on it. It should humble us to the dust. But hand-in-hand with God's sovereignty is our responsibility to believe and continue believing the truth of God. And that we must trust in Christ alone for our righteousness with God. All of us need to hear something. Unbelief, you know, sometimes we treat unbelief, and sometimes we redefine doubt. We redefine unbelief as doubt when it's really unbelief. Unbelief is not a small sin. Unbelief, as R.C. Sproul said, is cosmic treason. It's not a small thing. It's defiance toward God. It calls Him a liar and rejects His Word. It refuses the grace of God. It refuses Christ, His rightful reign in our hearts and our lives. It is is sourced in arrogance and pride. And when we read this text and we see the numbers of Israelites out of this chosen nation who did not receive the salvation of the Lord, we need to look at that and say, I must guard my heart. I must guard my heart. 
against unbelief. I must guard my heart and keep it soft. It's a constant threat, unbelief is. Election does not negate human responsibility to believe. In fact, as the writer of Hebrews says, he says this, Take care, brothers. Not all y'all, brothers. Lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he calls unbelief here evil and a deceitful sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed, if indeed what? We hold our original confidence firm to the end. Guard your heart against falling away from the living God, from His truth, from all of His truth. Don't be the one that says, it's God's responsibility to keep me in the faith. God does keep you in the faith. He sure does. And the means He uses is by you keeping your heart soft and holding fast your original confidence firm to the end. Well, where does God end and I begin? Why does that even matter? Make sure. Number three, make sure that you are trusting in Christ alone for righteousness with God. Listen, I'm encouraging every one of you this morning to really search your heart and be honest and make sure that you're relying on Christ alone and not on your own form of righteousness for your acceptance with God. Okay? Because here's the thing. Works righteousness is the default of every one of our hearts, naturally. Make sure that you're not trusting in your own goodness. Make sure that you're not trusting in your own form of righteousness, in your own form of morality or religiosity. In fact, don't trust in yourself at all. Really? Yeah. I always cringe. I always cringe. When I hear somebody giving their testimony and they say something along the lines of, Christ believed in me when I didn't. And He taught me how to believe in myself. And that's why I am here today. That's why I'm standing before you like this, because He believed in me when I didn't believe in me. And taught me how to believe in me. That might be the most tone-deaf testimony I've ever heard. And yet you hear it from cultural Christians, particularly athletes, so often. Faith in self is the fundamental opposite of believing the gospel. Do you understand? Self-esteem is the exact opposite of the position that your heart must have in order to believe the gospel. You might, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute now. I've been in church a while. I've been in churches that talk about self-esteem. I don't doubt it. And that whole shift in mentality happened when preachers became psychologists instead of preachers of the Word of God. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself. You know what that means? Let him have absolutely nothing to do with himself. Let him regard his old self as anathema. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. Die to that old man. And follow me. For whoever would save 
his life, preserve his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, don't misunderstand what I am saying. I am not saying that human beings should not have dignity as those made in the image of the living God. You should carry yourself with dignity. All human beings should, whether they're redeemed or not, because you're created, although now marred, in the image of God. But what I am saying is this. Self-exaltation, self-esteem, learning to accept yourself just the way you are, that is a death knell to faithful evangelism in the gospel. And for those of you that are in this room and you have not come to faith in Christ yet, if you're refusing to submit to the gospel and believe in Christ alone for righteousness with God, and particularly those of you who've been around long enough to know the doctrine of election, especially you students, just because God is sovereign over salvation does not mean that you are to just apathetically sit back and wait for God to zap you into faith. You're commanded to repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus began his ministry, the first thing he preached, repent and believe the gospel. Not be indifferent or apathetic in light of divine election. In fact, you demonstrate that you are elect just as the Gentiles that Paul spoke of when you respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you confirm your calling and election through faithful obedience to Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit according to Peter. If you see yourself and you see your sinful state before God and you know that you must give an account to Him at the end of your days and you see that you are a rebel and a sinner and under His just condemnation and wrath and the only hope for acceptance with God must come through the Lord Jesus Christ, don't just stick your head under the covers and hope it goes away like the boogeyman in your closet. Don't. If you know that it's only through the substitutionary, representative, life of holiness, Christ's perfect fulfillment of God's righteous standard on the behalf of sinners and His substitutionary, debt-paying, wrath-bearing death in the sinner's place, in His resurrection from the dead, if that's the only way that people can be saved, then respond. And if you don't respond, it's no one's fault but your own. Repent of your sin. Come to Christ. Come to God with an empty hand. Humble yourself. Repent of your sin. Lay hold. Lay hold of Christ. Grab Christ by faith and be saved. Just like the Gentiles did. He's the only way of salvation. He's the only way that God has put forward for us to be redeemed. Don't stumble at Christ. Submit to Christ. Respond to Him in faith. And be saved. Because no matter how long this world lasts, this truth remains. It will remain the truth forever. There is salvation in no one else. Not yourself. Not anybody. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men. What? By which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Your Word is truth. It is the unvarnished, 
unmixed, pure, refined, inerrant, absolute truth. It is truth, Lord, with a capital T. It is unchanging truth. And when we look at Your Word and when we hear Your truth, Lord God, the response of our hearts must be one of humble submission. Our hearts must be malleable before You. They've got to be soft. And I pray, Lord God, that that has been the case this morning. I'm pleading with You right now, Lord God, that You would apply the words that have been preached this morning in the very specific way in which every heart that's in this room needs it. Lord, I can't begin to describe all of the various ways that some of us need to respond to Christ. And if I tried to figure them out, if I tried to figure out how we ought to respond today to Your Word, I would certainly be in error. But You do all things perfectly. You do all things thoroughly. You do all things in perfect accordance with Your will, which is Your glory and the good of Your people. So I pray, Lord, this morning that these words would affect our hearts and our minds and our souls in the way that they need to. In the way that You intended. And I pray that Your intention, Father, is to turn hearts to You and not away. To confirm Your people in faith and not confirm people in condemnation. So Lord, I pray, help us to respond to these words as we should today. Help us respond to these words for the good of our soul, for Your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen.